I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with Dr. Abby Strauss, and we're speaking with Dr. Peter Grinspoon, a primary care physician at Massachusetts General Hospital and an instructor in medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Dr. Greenspoon is a practicing physician in recovery from opioid addiction, and he is also the author of the memoir, Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You were quoted recently, or at least your Twitter feed was quoted in the uh, Medscape online. This was a response to the Department of Health and Human Services new practice guidelines, wherein they plan to largely drop the so-called X waiver requirement for buprenorphine suboxone. Getting into this discussion, for those who are not completely familiar, could you give us just a little background on what the X waiver is and why that came about in the first place? Absolutely. Buprenorphine is one of the two most effective treatments for opiate addiction. The other is methadone. Methadone, by law, can only be prescribed for addiction in a methadone clinic, in a separate clinic run by the government, essentially. Kind of ironic, we can, as a primary care doctor, I'm allowed to prescribe methadone for pain in my primary care clinic, but not for addiction. Buprenorphine, you're allowed to prescribe in any doctor's office. It's also called Suboxone is a trade name, and a lot of people call it, call it Suboxone or subtext. In order to prescribe Suboxone or buprenorphine, you need a special waiver which involves eight hours of training. And there are other restrictions. You could only have 30 patients at first, and then they expand it to 100 patients. And you have to keep very meticulous records. And the DEA also like audits people's offices. In audits, they're prescribing, and they make people sort of nervous about prescribing this. But it's a Schedule Three substance. In my tweet, I think I was raising the irony that many of us feel that to prescribe the morphine, the Vicodin, the oxycodone, the oxycontin that people tend to get addicted to in the first place, you don't need any kind of special waiver or special license. But to prescribe the treatment, the buprenorphine, which is much less misusable than the original opiates that you might have prescribed, you do need a special waiver. And the fact that you need eight extra hours of training and the fact that there's a lot of scrutiny to the prescribing of this medication discourages a lot of doctors from prescribing it. And there's already such a shortage of people willing to treat addiction. And only about 10 to 20% of people who have opiate addiction can get the treatment that they need. Why would there be a waiver to make it even harder to prescribe these substances? What was their reasoning for doing this in the first place? I just think it's sort of a drug war mentality and a sort of a misconception too of what buprenorphine is. Buprenorphine is sort of hard to, quote-unquote, abuse. It doesn't cause the euphoria that other opiates can. It's got a ceiling effect. Sure, people feel good when they take it, and people can misuse it. Like, they can misuse a lot of different things. But it's really not that abusable. I think the government had this mentality where they don't want to make the problem worse by adding more opiates on the streets. But they were not really understanding that most people who use it illicitly are, are self-treating their opiate withdrawal and their opiate addiction because they're scared of overdosing. How will that work? It's interesting. Trump actually exed the waiver. He said, we don't need the waiver anymore. He didn't really have the authority to do that. You need a Congress to do that. You can't just by fiat X the waiver. I think part of what Biden said, we actually have to do this the right way. So right now, Biden undid what Trump did, which everybody cheered People were very excited that he had gotten rid of the waiver because it was a humane thing to do and it would help 
doctors who are trying to treat the opiate epidemic and would help patients who are trying to get access to these medications. So it was seemingly everybody was on board with, and we were sort of shocked when the Biden administration took it away. Biden said, no, 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 we can't do that. So right now the waiver is back. What the Biden administration is saying is that it's because you, Trump didn't really have the authority because it was a statute. From a psychiatric point of view, what comes to mind is why there was such a emphasis by the government to restrict, limit, inhibit, impede, whatever, treatment of addiction, but not directly do the same amount of impeding and monitoring of the things that caused it. Do you think that part of the problem was that when someone announced that they were on Suboxone, they were concurrently announcing that they had an addiction and were out of control? So the whole stigma thing just popped up? I've been troubled a lot with what you just talked about and what Brent talked about is why this backwards, upside-down notion to limiting treatment as opposed to spending more time on causative elements. I don't know if my question even makes sense. No, it does. And I think stigma is a very, a very big part of it. France, decades ago, opted for very low threshold access to buprenorphine. The result was that their addiction rates plummeted. There are models of having a very low threshold without any of this nonsense of waivers and the DEA getting on people's cases and so forth. So it really doesn't make any sense. I think stigma is a lot of it. A sort of microcosm, interestingly, is the way they treat physicians with addiction which I know a lot about. There was a New England Journal of Medicine article that came out about a year ago, which really surveyed physician health programs. And they don't let physicians be on buprenorphine because they say it's quote unquote impairing. But they have no problem with physicians taking Ambien, benzodiazepines, gabapentin, muscle relaxants, drinking alcohol, all of which are arguably as if not more impairing than buprenorphine. It's there's a lot of stigma against addiction treatment, both within the physician community and certainly within the DEA, which has been fighting this war on drugs. If you ask me, done nothing to stop drug use. It's just made drug use a lot more dangerous because people are using illegal fentanyl instead of using drugs that are monitored by physicians and scientists and public health people. So I think stigma is a huge part of it. Do you feel that because the people who are designing the rules, do they not understand the realities are the wrong people writing the rules? Absolutely. I think that the people who have experienced addiction haven't had a seat at the table. We're just very slowly moving into understanding addiction as a disease, not as a moral failing. But it takes a long time to get there. It's been very recent that we've been talking in these terms. For the longest time, people have been stigmatized. This is your brain on drugs. People have been like discarded. During the whole crack epidemic, we were so happy as a society to just put people in prison. Honestly, it wasn't until it started affecting sort of white people in the suburbs that the whole narrative treating people with addiction as people that needed help, not as people that are just troublemakers with bad morality that need to be locked up, started to change. And I'm so glad that it is starting to change, even if it isn't for the best reasons that it's starting to change. It takes a long time for the stigma to be diffused. The government, you know, Nixon's war on drugs, there a lot of money was put in. Nancy Reagan's Just Say No and the Partnership for Drug-Free America. They had millions of dollars of advertising and they just tried to paint and stigmatize people who use drugs as a way to get people to not use drugs. But it didn't work. It just made people stigmatized and people feel bad about themselves. It made people judge people instead of treat them. And we just have this attitude as a culture of punishing people instead of treating them. And that's changing, but it doesn't change 
overnight. And this is reflected in how we treat addiction. I think it was in 1937 that Reefer Madness came out. Right. And all the ripples that came from this. You as a physician, you as someone who was addicted, and I'm going to have to bring in you as the son of your father. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Why? What, what are we missing as a community? And let's just focus on physicians, but it really reflects to everybody. What are we missing? Why is the problem growing? Help us point the arrow in the direction that it needs to, to be pointed. Well, I think that all societies have used intoxicants. And, and criminalizing is just like not the way to, to deal with something that people have always done. It just seems so arbitrary that like alcohol is legal and cannabis isn't. Oxycodone is legal and heroin isn't legal, but they're like this close together. They're like virtually the same thing chemically. A lot of it started with racism. Certain groups did one drug and certain groups did another drug. One type of drug became illegal and the other type of drug became legal. And then a lot of it is commercial. Law enforcement makes hundreds of billions of dollars a year enforcing certain drug laws. The war on drugs is such a cash cow and there's such entrenched interests. But I think if we just started over and did it from scratch, we'd say that it makes much more sense to have drugs in the hands of doctors, scientists, and public health officials, and to treat people who get in trouble with them, and to tax these things like crazy so that we have money to pay for these things. This is what they did in Portugal, for example. The hep C rates went way down, the HIV rates went way down, and the addiction rates are like a third of what they were. And the crime has gone way down. The illegality of the drugs is driving a lot of the crime and a lot of the danger. I honestly think if opiates were not illegal, nobody would be dying of fentanyl. We wouldn't be losing 100,000 people a year. People will do drugs no matter what. And if you arrest one drug dealer, there are always going to be 10 other people to sell the drugs because there are so many poor, desperate people and there's so much money to be made. If this could just be legal and regulated and taxed, the drugs would be safe. There wouldn't be drug dealers. There wouldn't be this crime. And we'd have all this tax revenue to treat people and to educate people. I mean, I know that's sort of a radical concept, but it's less radical than it was 10, even 10 years ago. I think people are sort of coming along. They're starting to legalize cannabis and they're seeing the sky isn't falling. In fact, teen rates are about the same. Crime's about the same. And prescription drug use is going down a little bit. Alcohol goes down a little bit and tax revenue goes up. So what about physicians? We have access to drugs <laughs> and True. there's a lot of stresses and we can get into what it's like being a physician these days. Are we as physicians or those who are listening who are physicians or in the medical field, is there an increased propensity, likelihood, and so on of drifting into substance abuse Absolutely. And this is pre-COVID. I'm worried about what happened post-COVID because people are really stressed out. Generally speaking, the sort of the lifetime risk is about 9% of drug or alcohol addiction. And among physicians, it's thought to be about 10 to 15%. We have such stress and we have such access. It's a perfect storm. Uh, that's why we call it my book, Free Refills. We essentially have free refills to any pharmaceuticals we want with the samples and the we can find ways to get access to medications. People give us the benefit of the doubt. We have the same problems that everybody else does. We get depressed. We have divorces. We have family members die. But we're expected. We have this culture where we're supposed to be these high-functioning robots that never have problems. There's this whole physician heal thyself culture, which is so unhealthy. 
You know, you read these studies of medical students and residents and the depression rates among these newly upcoming doctors, and we've really got to change our ways or we're in big trouble because the way the medical boards have been treating problems is they punish you instead of treating you. And the end result is that people don't get help. Instead of treating, for example, like a surgeon who's struggling with alcohol early on in their struggles, the surgeon doesn't get help because he or she doesn't want to get their license yanked. So you end up with the surgeon drunk in the OR five years later, front page of the newspaper, license revoked for five years. It's a fiasco. Patient gets injured. When a physician who's being helped and monitored is very safe, it's the physicians that you don't know are struggling that are really dangerous. And if we could just change the climate so that people feel comfortable getting help, that they won't get punished, they'll actually get helped and treated, it would be much safer for patients and much safer for doctors. Educate the medical boards to be less punitive and more supportive of doctors that are suffering from depression, anxiety, or alcoholism or substance misuse. First of all, we're suffering as a profession. And again, after COVID, it's been the physicians I talk to are just traumatized. But even without COVID, we're really suffering and we need to be treated and nurtured, not punished. It's just not working. I just want to take a step back to what we were talking about before in terms of the specifically treatment, X waiver, Suboxone. What is your take on where the government's going to be going with this now? I think they're going to get rid of the waiver. Absolutely. They just have to do it the right way, like the legal way. Everybody's coming to understand that buprenorphine is fairly non-abusable medication as far as these things go, and that the disaster of not having access to it for like 80% of people who are suffering from opiate addiction is a much greater disaster than the few people that are going to misuse it. I think the waiver is going to be gone very shortly. And then the next battle is going to be, why on earth can we prescribe methadone for pain in our primary care clinics, but not for addiction? That doesn't make any sense. Why make people wait like cattle every morning in their methadone clinic? It's called liquid handcuffs. Well, I think the next battle is going to be, let us prescribe methadone in the primary care clinic. If we're willing to take on that responsibility, why on earth can't we prescribe methadone as well? Methadone and buprenorphine, those two medications have been shown to cause a 50 to 80% reduction in overdose and death in people who are suffering from opiate use disorder. So they need to be as widely available as possible. We spoke a few moments ago about some of the stigma and on many different levels. So looking just at the Suboxone arena, a lot of people in recovery that I've spoken to, including physicians in recovery like yourself, have been very skeptical of what they've told me about Suboxone. I know the AMA has become a big advocate. There's been a lot of quality research done. The federal government is a big advocate funding for this. Why is there so much controversy? Why has there been so much pushback? Well, it's interesting. People have very strong philosophies about recovery. And some people feel that if you're on a drug for recovery, like Suboxone, you're not really in recovery because you're just substituting one drug for another. We don't believe that at all at MGH. We think it's like insulin for a diabetic and that opiate addiction is like a dysregulation of kind of neurochemicals in your brain reward pathways and that you're completely in recovery if you're on Suboxone. It, it, it regulates you. People are back to work. They're back with their families. They're doing really well. But I think part of that is like the influence of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and some of the more sort of religious recovery influences, because they have a very sort of strident opposition to medications for recovery. 
uh, partially because they're very abstinence-only. That's been the tradition since 1937, because it came before there were medications for recovery. And also, it's a big fight over like whether recovery has to be strictly abstinence-only or whether it doesn't have to be abstinence-only. And then the medications made it a lot more complicated because you could be abstinent, but you're on a medication, which is an opioid, but it's prescribed by a doctor. Is that abstinence or is that not abstinence? So I think a lot of the trouble comes, a lot of these people get, get quote unquote sober in a rehab and they're not allowed to be on Suboxone because the medical boards don't let you. And then they sort of get inculcated with the fact that you're not really in recovery if you're on Suboxone. But I honestly think that that doesn't understand recovery or Suboxone or the reality of like the neurochemistry of opiate addiction. We really believe that you're in recovery completely if you're on Suboxone, that it's not just substituting another drug. It's like an integral. I mean, if it has a 50 to 80% reduction in death and overdose, how is that not being in recovery? That's such an interesting concept. It's the definition of recovery. And maybe that's what we need to look at. There is a continuous discussion, shall we say, between those who treat purely with verbal therapies or cognitive therapies as a time and place for that. And there's a sense that those who need medications are weak, that they're not able to stand up and bite the bullet. And I will say that a fair chunk of my time is educating people on the appropriate use of medications versus the therapies. I love the concept that maybe the people who are writing the rules do not have an an operational sense of what real covered in its gestalt is all about. Fascinating concept. I'm glad that Massachusetts is looking that it's a little bit of both. In reality, it is. People can, can believe whatever they want and whatever works for them. If someone gets in recovery, I'm delighted if they do it through a 12-step program or with buprenorphine. Either way is great, but I just don't think it's good to make other people feel bad about it. You can't say to someone in Narcotics Anonymous meeting, you're not really in recovery because you're on Suboxone. That's like the wrong thing to do. It's got to be an open tent. It's hard enough to get by in recovery. You know, one day at a time, it's a really difficult struggle and people have to support each other, not, not criticize each other. There's been a lot of conversation, again, in the MAT and the Suboxone arena, saying for it to be truly effective, there needs to be a strong mental health component. On the one hand, they say 70 to 80 percent of addiction is accompanied by untreated anxiety or depression or untreated anxiety and depression. So I think it's integral to treat that. It just seems sort of axiomatic that if you don't approach that, you're going to still have the same preconditions that cause the addiction in the first place. And furthermore, they're understanding that addiction is linked to a lot of unresolved trauma. So that seems really important as well. But at the same time, some of the studies they do show that if you give buprenorphine plus psychosocial therapy versus just giving buprenorphine, the retention rates are about the same. So some of the new studies are kind of interesting in that sense. So it seems to me it's critical to have social support. Such an important part of recovery is like connecting with other people and listening and being part of a community and gratitude. So I think it's critically important, but I do have to note that some of the studies have shown that buprenorphine seems to dwarf the psychosocial stuff when they've actually studied it. So the jury's still out on that because you can't just ignore the data. 
in your own recovery process, was uh, Suboxone part of that? Couldn't be. It was like just not an option because I was a doctor. And the rehab I was at, they sent me like a Jewish atheist to a, a very religious program in Virginia. I don't know why the Massachusetts Medical Board did that. The rehab I was at was not going to give me Suboxone. And then the physician health service in Massachusetts wasn't going to prescribe Suboxone because it just wasn't anything they do. That was 15 years earlier than the last year's New England Journal of Medicine article came out that explained that they don't do that. So they definitely weren't doing it 15 years ago. And then the medical board was in no way 15 years ago, they were going to let a doctor go back to work on Suboxone. They barely do now. I don't even know if they do now. Now they're smart enough to not say that they don't because they don't want to get club senseless like they did last year by this New England Journal of Medicine article. That was never an option for me. I sort of resent it because why would doctors not be given the one treatment that's shown to reduce overdoses and deaths? I mean, we take care of everybody else. Why aren't we offered the life-saving treatment that everybody else is offered? It just seems like inhumane. So I'm working very hard to change that. One of the things that you bring up goes straight to what your dad talked about and so many other psychiatrists is that those who are writing the rules do not necessarily understand the history of the condition that they are now regulating. I'm old enough to remember when many different psychiatric conditions were not treated by medications. And if you were treated by medications, it was a sign of weakness. And we now know that sometimes for bipolar disorder, you can talk forever. They need medicines. We've changed the definition. So we need to change what you're saying or expand or have subcategories of definitions of addiction. We don't. We're getting there, but it's slow to change. I honestly think the whole, like, this is your brain on drugs, the whole war on drugs really set us behind because they really stigmatize drug users. And people view drug users as... You just think of drug user and people come up with these negative images, but in reality, it's all of us. Like it can be anybody. I can attest to that. I worked with so many doctors that were addicted and none of them said, hey, I'm going to become addicted. They were just people who got overwhelmed with their circumstances by the burnout of being a physician or they had a loss or they just had an anxiety disorder that got out of hand and they just slipped into taking drugs as a shortcut. And then the drugs sort of took over and they ended up above their head and then they couldn't get help because they didn't want to get in trouble. And it just sort of snowballed and nobody means to get addicted. And they're just the most miserable people on the earth. People have this misconception of like the people who are addicted is like these hedonistic people having a great time. People who are addicted are literally the most miserable people on the planet. Mm -hmm. And we just need more compassion and less judgment. How has things changed in this opioid arena from your perspective during the COVID pandemic? MGH trained a bunch of us to become health and wellness coaches before COVID. Actually, we were training in Naples, Florida to address the burnout crisis among the physicians at MGH. It was a really cool thing that MGH did, but little did they know what they were training us for because right when we all became health and wellness coaches, we were not just dealing with garden variety burnout. We were dealing with a whole body of physicians that were utterly traumatized from dealing with March, April, and May and dealing with like working all the time and having their lives at risk and risking their families and not sleeping and having patients die. And, oh my God, people are so, doctors are so stressed out and traumatized right now. I can't even tell you. It's like acute chronic injury. In terms of patients, so much of recovery is about connecting together. The whole physical distancing ripped that asunder. 
These support group meetings are like a lifeline to a lot of people. And it's just not the same thing over a computer. I guess if you've been going to the group for 20 years, you know everybody you can get by. But imagine if you're new to a group, it's really different saying you start the group by saying, hi, I'm Peter, I'm an addict. Like I can't even imagine saying that to a group of strangers if you're not in the group. Someone usually comes up after and people introduce themselves to you and say it's going to be okay. And I can't even imagine that that kind of support over the internet. Furthermore, it's just much harder to access Suboxone or Methadone because the doctors might be out or the doctors get reassigned. The psychiatrists were running ventilators. Who's in the office? People are sick. Who's prescribing the Suboxone? Luckily, the government relaxed the rules a little bit on the Suboxone and the Methadone. They didn't make the people come in every day for the Methadone. Thank God they should keep that because there's no reason to make people come in every day. And they made the intervals longer that people could get the Suboxone for so that people didn't have to keep coming in and getting exposed. And they also made it so you could do televisits, recognizing the reality that the doctors weren't necessarily going to be available in the office to see people. On the one hand, the government did loosen the regulations and that helps somewhat, but people in general had a really hard time with access to medications, with the social isolation, and just with stress, it brings out everybody's worst habits. In a perfect world, when we're stressed out, we eat tofu and we meditate, but none of us do that reliably. We all overeat or have an extra beer or do something. None of us are perfect. And people who are vulnerable to addiction can relapse. So I think the drug and alcohol use we're going to find is much higher than it was. Obviously, before the pandemic, people were really lonely and really stressed out. And what happens when people are really lonely and really stressed out? They reach for their comforts at hand. And a lot of those are really unhealthy. How optimistic are you that we're going to be able to get back on track? Well, I'm very optimistic that we'll be back on track. It's just a question of when. If we get the vaccine out and none of the mutations escape the control of the vaccine, I think we'll be okay. It just, it's been so slow getting the vaccine out and it's sort of chemistry lab like or biology labs. We're just waiting for these things to evolve. I just want them to get everybody vaccinated before this coronavirus to breed these variants. So you just read the newspaper every day and hope you don't read about some variant that doesn't get captured by the vaccine. Dr. Peter Greenspoon, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a fascinating conversation. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for talking about these issues. They're really important to physicians, both in terms of how they take care of themselves and in terms of how they take care of their patients. They're like critically important issues. Thank you. Thank you very much and keep safe. Yeah, you guys stay safe too. And I'm really nice chatting with you.